Area 51, how many here have been there? Nobody? Do you guys know what Area 51 is or why it's famous or infamous? Who here knows what Area 51 is about? Okay, so most of us. So is Area 51, is it merely a, uh, an Air Force installation? Or is that the place that we hide the aliens that the U.S. Uh, Air Force or others have, have uh, somehow captured and, and hidden? Uh, we develop what we call conspiracy theories. Uh, when we have partial information or, or maybe even sometimes no information and we're trying to put two and two together or two plus who knows what together and come up with some kind of guesstimate about what's going on. Conspiracy series. There's things that are beyond our ability to know, at least in the moment, and we're trying to figure out what that means or what's at work. Um, did JFK, was he killed by Lee Harvey Oswald alone or was there really a second shooter on the grassy knoll? Um, you know, the stuff in politics today, is there really a conspiracy by the Russians and by the Trump administration, or is this who knows what? Uh, but conspiracy theories, trying to figure out the things that otherwise we don't have enough information to know. This morning, we're, we're sort of talking about that a little bit in the way of spiritual warfare. Uh, spiritual warfare is a given in the Scriptures. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We'll be in Ephesians 6. We're going to finish up, actually the study through the book of Ephesians. And so Paul starts taking up a topic about which if God doesn't tell us something, we're not going to know. We simply have no ability in the unseen arena, the non-physical arena to figure things out. And so sometimes we, depending on our background and what we think, sometimes for us as Christians, we think that a devil's behind everything bad that's going on in life. And other times, we sort of poo-poo the thought that the enemy could have anything to do with what's going on either in the culture or our life or the lives of others. We're sort of working in the dark. So God lifts the veil a little bit on this in Ephesians 6. It's the key New Testament a text on spiritual warfare. There's certainly other important passages, by the way. If you read places like Job, especially the first three chapters. If you read Daniel, especially the last three chapters, you're talking about spiritual warfare on a personal and on a worldwide scale as well. But this is the more personal this morning that Paul's going to be talking about, spiritual warfare. So God shows us how to wage effective warfare over a foe that's defeated, uh, but who still wreaks a lot of havoc. This was a great opening song. Uh, you know, Martin Luther had a death sentence on his head when that song was written. When he held up in the castle at Worms, Germany, for a year... Had he been caught by anybody out in the open, uh, the emperor had put a death sentence on him and said it's uh, illegal to help him in any way. And if you kill him, there's no retribution. Anyone, there's a price on his head. You can kill him without uh, suffering any harm. He wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God with that in mind. And we, we want to sort of take that kind of confidence and a lot of the lyrics he had come straight from the Scripture. That thought of, we have, guys, we have a, a foe, a real foe, a personal foe, and personal foes, plural, that they hate us. And, and they want nothing for your life but death and destruction. And this is an important thing to know. And you remember in Ephesians, we're talking about this whole big theme is that one day God brings all things under the headship or the rulership of Christ. But right now, no matter what's going on in your life personally or the church, 
you've got an entity and his followers who are determined to do anything but to submit to Christ. And so Paul's talking to us today about what does it look like to live and contend in a spiritual arena. Uh, You and I will not always know the source of temptation or trouble that besets you. We won't always know if it's the devil, if it's something that simply God has allowed in our life. We don't always know. But for sure, Paul tells us that we've got everything we need to succeed in the spiritual arena. So we're going to be in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 23. And guys, I'll give you this caveat on the front end again. Uh, 13 lessons in Ephesians, a really deep, deep book, is sort of a general overview. So we're covering a lot of ground. We're not going deep. We're going broad. So I hope, trust, you'll follow up as may be helpful to you on your own, okay? So Ephesians 6, 10 through 23, I'm reading from the ESV. And if you use a pew Bible, this is page 979. Paul says, finally, or last thing, this letter, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that my words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Well, guys, before we get into the text this morning, I want to cover a base that we already covered briefly. And it's just this. Paul says finally before he gets down to spiritual warfare. And we want to take that into consideration as we're thinking about this it's the last thing he talks about in this letter and so as you and i are thinking about sin and challenges and temptations in our life the spiritual warfare is the last thing paul brings up and we want to make sure that when we're considering spiritual warfare it is in fact the enemy that we're dealing with and not simply our own sins so if you go back just entertain me briefly if you go back into chapter four paul's already talked to us about addressing our own personal sins Have you ever said this or or someone else has done this? You've sinned or you know somebody else has had sin in their life and the fruit of that sin is coming up and they say, the devil's attacking me. And you say, well, no, it's the fruit of my own sin. Everything you and I experience is not 
adversarial from the spiritual entities in the unseen world, some of which you and I get the hard things in life are the fruit of our own sin. Paul's already said in Ephesians 4, 22-24, there he said, you put off your old sinful self. Like a jacket, you take that off. And then he said, you put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness. That's the flesh. Have we dealt with our own sinful nature? Are we saying no to the sinful temptations? We don't need any help with, right? You and I come, we have sin. It's, in, it's connected to this body, old sinful self, with us as long as we're in the body. We've got a sinful self. It's always going to be there. And it's always going to desire sin. So are we dealing with the sin that's in our own life, the temptations that come because we have a sinful nature? Have we done that? The other thing is the world. Look at verse 417 for just a second. He says, don't uh, walk or live as the Gentiles do in the futility and the darkness of their minds. If you and I are taking our cues from the world around us, the cosmos, the cosmic powers that influence the culture and the world around us, Paul says you're living in futility and darkness. And if I'm taking my cues from the world, and guys, lots of Christians are, the church is so affected by the world today, it's crazy. We're taking our cues from the world and we wonder why life doesn't go along more swimmingly. Why am I having these challenges, these emotional and spiritual challenges? Sometimes it's because we're living in the world. The world is our home, not, not the church, not God and His Word and that fellowship. Uh, John says in 1 John that to be friends with the world is to make ourselves, even as God's children, enemies. It puts us at odds with God our Father. That's not what Paul's talking about in chapter 6. So is it sin in our life that's coming to bear to bear fruit? Or are we simply living our life in the world? That produces its own darkness and frustration. He's already talked about that. Notice also, he's already dealt with pride also. So if you look at 4 verse 2, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. He said at 5.21, submit yourselves. That requires humility to one another. The authorities that God's put in our life. And if you look, and I'm not going to cover this this morning, you look later at 1 Peter 5 and James 4. These are on your study sheet. Pride is the devil's sin. And everything he does comes out of pride. Exaltation of self. And guys, when you and I are walking in pride, we look like the devil, not like God's children. And so what you'll see, 1 Peter 5 and James 4, which are key passages on resisting the devil, God attaches humility to spiritual success against the enemy. Submit yourself to God. Humble yourself before God. Then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So God's already dealt with for us in this epistle, the world and the flesh, our own temptation to pride's already been dealt with. We want to make sure we're not living in those arenas of sin and calling that spiritual opposition. It's not. Not specifically. The world's affected by Satan. But we need to be aware our own pride brings trouble. Our own sin brings trouble. And if we're living our lives in the world scene and culture around us, that brings its own futility and trouble. That's not what we're talking about this morning. So we want to make sure we've already dealt with those before we get to spiritual warfare. You got a little check off there on your sheet again this morning. Before we move on, am I consistently putting off my old sinful, proud, self-serving self? Guys, this is something <laughs> it requires a conscious effort every day. It really does, because we just default to our sinful self. Am I free from chronic past sins? And by this I mean, 
Am I addressing the sins that are part of my history and part of my makeup? I'm not saying, are we sin-free? Nobody here is sin-free. But, but we'll tend to have patterns where if we don't specifically address them, they're going to they're gonna harm us. They're just going to keep being part of our life. Are we working to put those away? Sometimes that, by the way, requires the help of others. Do my attitude-informing influences come from God and His Word? The world is too much with us soon and late. We are caught up in a world system around us. We want to be aware of that. Who or where are our influences coming from? The world or from God? You can think about this. You do need to think about it. What are, what are my thoughts based on? What are my predilections and my opinions of what's desirable? What are they based on? And am I consistently submitting to the authorities God has placed in my life? If I'm doing those things, then I'm ready to start talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, if you look at this next... Uh, uh, verse verse 11 um, the call is to stand against the schemes the schemes of the devil and schemes there comes from a greek word that we would translate or transliterate methods the schemes of the devil are methods they are strategies they are plans there is foresight there is thought there is intelligence behind how the enemy comes against us and the church I mean, if you can find it online there's a great Andy Serkis um, read uh, screw tape letters and it has this chalkboard illustrations going on through the whole thing. Um, great clips. But uh, Lewis's screw tape letters was this, um, this fictional account that sort of gave us a sense of what it might look like if I could listen in on my spiritual opposition. What might that be like? And you realize as you read through that fictional account for sure, but there's planning and there's intelligence and there's malice. And that's what we're dealing with. It's methodology. It's intelligence. It's planning. It's strategy. Uh, you and I aren't facing someone that we're smarter than. We're facing someone smarter than us and very, very thoughtful. So it's schemes. Chuck Swindoll said this in his uh, short a study on Ephesians, he says, related to demons. And think about this. The demons, fallen angels, were existed before the creation of the world, Scripture says. They saw creation occur. They've been around to see not only from Adam and Eve, but all humanity since. Do you think they know a thing or two about what makes you and me tick and what's likely to help us to fall? Swindoll says, they know us intimately. Having studied us for years, they are familiar with our strengths, fully aware of our weaknesses. They're masters of psychology and experts on human nature. They know their prey far better than we know our devilish predators. They have insights and knowledge you and I will not have this side of heaven. They know things we don't know. And they know things about us. And they know humanity broadly. He says there in verse 12 also, uh, he says that your warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly spheres, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in this present darkness. This is language way back in chapter 1, same thing. Have you ever noticed this, guys, during political races, that the face of the enemy becomes humans? The, the candidate you don't want, man, he's from the devil. The people who are voting for the people you think are lousy, man... They're lousy. They become the enemy. Do you not find this? Do you not find that your emotion starts being set against those other people? 
And Paul says, people are not your spiritual opposition. You know, they're just like us. They're sinners. They're fallen. They need a savior. And maybe some of them are saved and they simply disagree with our opinion on things. Flesh and blood, Paul says, is not the enemy that you and I need to be concerned with. It's the spiritual forces that affect people's thinking. That's the enemy. People are not the enemy in this context. Spiritual forces that are unseen, they are. So Satan and his demons have one goal. John 10.10, the thief comes only to rob, kill, and destroy. There's no mercy in Satan or demons. There's no thought that they'll feel sorry for us or that somehow they'll let us up. We want to make sure that we're not on the receiving end of what they want to dish out. Some of the schemes and the methods of the devil include things like, and you'll see as we work through uh, the armor of God here in just a minute, the primary thing that Satan does is accuse us. Now, the term Satan means adversary, my opponent, the enemy. But devil, diabolos, means the accuser, the slanderer. So when the, when the devil, when Satan goes to God in Job, he slanders, he accuses Job. And that's what he does to you and me. And it's not just in the courts of heaven. It's what he hammers you and me over the head with. And we'll come to this when we get to the weapons, our warfare. But accusations against us. That's one of his primary assaults. He also tempts us to sin. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden, the temptation to sin. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, it's the temptation to sin, the direct assault of the enemy. You know what else he does? If he's successful in tempting us to sin, he then accuses us for the sin he us, tempted us to do. He tempts us, he accuses us. He tempts us to doubt uh, God's goodness to us, God's work in our life, God's word. Do you remember, in, uh, has God really said, that's uh, Satan's words to Eve, did he really say that? You've got to be kidding. Do you really believe that? Did he really say that? Maybe you misunderstood. Doubt God's word. He encourages us towards false teachings. Think of 1 Timothy 4.1. Paul there warns about doctrines of demons. There, there are demons. If Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, religious uh, schemes that offer a different path to salvation, I conclude from the Scriptures, they are demonically inspired. That Satan is behind them. If there's only one God and one way to him and Jesus is it, every other scheme, every other teaching that comes along to say, that's not true of God, this is true of God, that's not the way to get to God, Jesus, this is the way to get, get to God, those Paul would call doctrines of demons. You remember in 1 Corinthians when he talks about worship of idols, he says the statue is nothing. It's a statue, wood or, or stone. But there are demons, he says, behind the statues. Demons behind the worship that's going on there. So, so, we're waging battle with someone that's smarter than us, guys. We'll never be smarter than our opposition. Because of that, he says in verse 10, uh, finally, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You and I don't bring to bear anything that has to do with physical strength, has nothing to do with spiritual warfare. So the bigger or stronger we are makes no difference physically. The smaller, the weaker we are physically. Age, uh, I'm, an, I'm an old little granny. I'm a young strapping guy. It makes no difference in this arena of spiritual warfare. It has nothing to do with physical possessions, might, strength. 
It has to do with spiritual. Jesus said in John 16.33, In the world you'll have trouble, but take, take heart, I've overcome the world. Our victory is always in Christ. It's not in our own strength. 1 John 4.4 4 says, Greater is he who's in the world than Greater is he in you than he who is in the world. The strength we face spiritual opposition with is not inherent in ourselves. It's Christ's strength. So he said, strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. You remember in the battle with David and Goliath? If it's physical strength against physical strength, David was in trouble. Right? Because this huge guy strapped with all the gear of his warfare, you know, there's very little exposed to harm. But David says, um, I come to you in the name of the Lord. In other words, my strength is the strength of the Lord. He didn't, he didn't wear armor. You remember he tried Saul's armor on. And he says it doesn't fit. I don't need it. That the battle for him, he understood, was being waged ultimately spiritually. So a, a little guy, young guy, probably around 17, with a slingshot and a stone put down that guy because it wasn't ultimately about physical strength. David said, I'm facing you in the strength and in the name of the Lord. Something else about spiritual warfare, it's not only in Christ's strength that we wage warfare, but um, depending on the books you've read, especially Christian fictional accounts about spiritual warfare, it's interesting what Paul tells us to do and what he says, something that he does not say to do. In the warfare, Paul just says, all you do is stand. All, All he says for us to do is stand. He doesn't say go out and take mountains. He doesn't say go out and find new enemy strongholds and take them down. He just says, you just stand. And I think broadly the thought is this. Christ has already won the victory. All things are Christ. We stand in his victory. And we're simply holding the ground that he has already taken. He has defeated the enemy. We haven't. We're standing in what he's already provided. We're standing in his victory. The goal is simply to stand. And that takes some doing. Do you remember one of David's mighty men? When it describes him in the Old Testament, it just says, you know what? He stood in a field of beans and he defended it against the Philistines. He didn't run up and take a stronghold. He just stood in the ground that was Israel's and he defeated the enemy there. That's what we're doing. We're simply standing in the ground God has already given And we're defeating the enemy there. You can see that same thought in Colossians 2, verse 15. The guys will spend the balance of the time talking about the armor or the the provision God has given us to fight these spiritual battles. Uh, Look at verse 11. Uh, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Verse 13, he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day. Um, The whole armor there comes from a Greek word, panoplia. And it's two root words, all or every, and either tool or instrument of war. So Paul says here that you have in what God's provided every instrument or provision for spiritual warfare that you need to be successful. If you and I fail in a spiritual battle, it's not because God hasn't given us what we need. It's because we haven't used it. So Paul here says, everything you need to face these spiritual battles successfully, you have right now in Christ. And we should say this too. This all comes down to Christ 
and his word. Everything you and I have related to this warfare is Christ and his word. If you said, if, if your version of spiritual warfare was no more complicated than trust and obey, you'd be about three-fourths of the way home. Trust and obey. We're not smarter than the enemy. We don't outsmart him. What we do is we trust in Christ and what he's already provided, and we trust in Christ's word. So everything we need, we've already got. And we want to say this too. You can get really worked up in developing um, imaginative descriptions of what all of these individual elements of our armor are. And that's not really the point. The point is what you have in Christ and what you have in God's word, that's what you need. So Paul's using some illustrations that would have been common to them in that day. So Paul remembers in prison, he's seen guys dressed just like this every day. And the people he's writing to in Ephesus, they saw Roman soldiers all the time. So when he's talking about this armor, he's using imagery that would have been very common to them. So it's the image that ties the reality is where we want to end up, not, not get stuck in the image. So the first thing Paul says that you and I have, this armor, this sufficiency we have to combat the enemy, he says is the belt of truth, the belt of truth. Now, for the Romans, this was a this is a great image, by the way. It's wide and it's thick. It's not a little belt like we wear around our pants today. It's very wide. It's thick. It holds either leather, sometimes chain mail that would protect their groin and their thighs. It held their sword. Also, they typically wore tunics. So if they needed to suddenly get in a fight, they would tuck themselves in the tunic into that wide, thick belt. They'd pull the sword from their belt also. And they're, they're defensive. They are ready to move. Paul says what, what is holding us together, what's preparing us for the enemy assault is truth. It's truth. The first truth that's incumbent on you and I to wage successful warfare is the truth of the gospel. That God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. That's the theme of Ephesians 1, but it's also 2 Corinthians. That God has reconciled himself to Christ. That's the first truth to lay hold of. In fact... Guys, if we don't have this one down, we're just susceptible, even as Christians, and you'll see this come up again later in the helmet of salvation. But if we don't know that we have salvation in Christ, the truth of the gospel is true of me, you're just open to all kinds of trouble. Accusation, temptation, you name it. So truth is the belt that secures us. Truth in the gospel, and then truth lived out truth lived out if you and i know the truth but we don't live it we're still susceptible to all kinds of harm and temptation that wouldn't otherwise be true it's truth known it's truth embraced it's truth lived out and the battlefield you and i are facing the enemy in is our minds it's our minds it's a great uh, folly for us to think we can outthink the devil uh, You'll never be sharper. You'll never be more intellectually astute. You won't know more this side of heaven than the devil knows generally and also specifically about you. Listen to this from Colossians 2. Paul says there, there are plausible arguments, philosophies, and human traditions that Christians were buying into. They were being deceived by philosophies, by reasonings, by arguments that weren't from God, but they were being taken in. They believed them. First Timothy 4, again, the doctrine of 
demons. Again, every false religion, every cult that's a variation on the theme of Christianity, doctrines of demons, people buy into them. We're not generally smarter than other people. The, the whole thing with the gospel isn't about human intelligence. It's simply about spiritual apprehension. Doctrines of demons. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says that what he's battling with these weapons of warfare that God provides, he says we're destroying arguments. That's human reasoning or demonic reasoning. We're destroying opinions and we're taking thoughts captive. So spiritual warfare is being, it's being played out in the arena of our mind. It's our thoughts. It's what we believe. And you can see, begin to see how important it is that we know what is true and you get what's true out of God's Word. The culture will lie to you. Our own deceptive hearts will lie to us. If we don't have a source of truth, we are in serious trouble. So you've got to be bound about, girded about with the belt of truth. The next thing he says is this, the, the breastplate of righteousness. It uh, could be metal, could be heavy leather, but this was two-sided, by the way, sometimes chain mail, two-sided, and it protected basically the vital organs, the lungs, the heart, kidneys, the liver, that uh, protected the vital organs. And, and Paul says that's like righteousness. Now, guys, you know, we, ha- we bring no righteousness of our own to a spiritual battle. The only righteousness you and I can claim is Christ's. So we stand in Christ, we stand in Christ's righteousness. And the enemy, this is one of the key ways the enemy accuses us. Uh, It's that you're unrighteous. It's that you've sinned or you've sinned again. Or you've sinned again and again. And the accusation comes to this thought of you're not right with God. You're not okay. And if I don't know that I am, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, the righteousness of God in Christ, when the enemy starts accusing me, I have no real defense. Most of what's going on here in the armor, it has to do with our own minds. It's not what's going on between us and something else outside. It's here. It's in our own heart, mind, and conscience. So the breastplate of righteousness is your ability and mine to declare to ourselves before God and before the enemy, I have a righteousness. It's perfect, and it's in Christ. I don't stand in my own righteousness. I stand in Christ's righteousness. When others accuse me or the enemy accuses me, I know, God, I'm okay between you and me because I have Christ's righteousness. It doesn't mean we don't confess sin. We do. But the righteousness we stand in is perfect. All of our sins are forgiven. When we sin, we disrupt the experience of that fellowship we have with God our Father or Christ our Savior. But the sins are already taken care of in in Christ's cross. The accusation we resist with the knowledge that we stand in the righteousness of Christ you remember Satan always uh, tries to tempt about who you are or what you are? Remember Jesus' temptation? If you are the Son of God. Implying maybe you're not. If you are God's child, how could you live that way? If you are God's child, how could you say that thing you said? Satan accusing us, you're unrighteous, surely you're not saved, you're not a Christian, you don't believe the truth, etc., the righteousness we have and possess, our defense against that accusation is the righteousness of Christ. It's not our righteousness. The next thing he says is the gospel of peace. Uh, Roman soldiers wore, they were really thick soles and they had hobnails in the bottom. 
you know, if you're walking in, in town on a paved road, those nails might make things a little slick, but most warfare wasn't taking place inside. It was taking place outside on turf of some sort. And those hobnails gave great grab. Uh, you could stand firmly. And those sandals would be uh, secured with leather tongs around the ankle and the shins. So the sandals, the shoes they were wearing, uh, gave them great security where they were standing. And Paul, Paul compares that to, for the Christian to peace. To peace. You know, if you and I don't have an internal sense of peace, you're agitated, you don't feel secure. You want to talk to someone else there's an internal insecurity going on you're not able to stand and listen calmly and take things in calmly stand securely because you lack peace well paul says we have in christ this peace in fact romans 5 21 or what is it 5 1 having peace with god through our lord jesus christ we have peace and that's it's one of the great gifts frankly right it's the fruit of the holy spirit if i know i have god's peace inside me Christ's peace i'm at peace with god i have his peace inside i can stand securely without that sense of peace i'm agitated i'm not ready to face what's coming there's too much going on inside so paul says we we have peace with god that's the peace we stand in but then it's also the peace that you and i are able to take with us when we talk to others we have a source of peace and it's out of that peace that we interact with others as well you can't get this any other way than in christ he also says take up the shield of faith and there's different kinds of roman shields the one we think paul has in mind this isn't a great illustration but would have had a wood frame it would have been covered by either wood or animal hide it would have been banded by iron and sometimes because the enemy would put arrow tips in pitch and set them on fire Soldiers with those combustible shields would typically soak them in water first. And then if one of those fiery pitch-covered arrows hit, it wouldn't ignite. And Paul uses that imagery here. He says, you've got a shield of faith. And when the enemy fires those fiery darts at you, the shield of faith is what's adequate to put them down or to extinguish them. The fiery darts or fiery missiles of the enemy. So typically accusation, it might mean some some kind of fallout, but the enemy is after you and he's hurling something against you. And the thing you hold up is, God, I know who you are and I trust your word. So again, if you said it's trust and obey is the limit of your knowledge of spiritual warfare, that would still get you almost all the way home. I don't know what's going on, Lord, but I trust you and I take you at your word. The shield of faith that I have to defeat the enemy is my trust in God. This would be a good point also to point out this. If you say, what does success in spiritual warfare look like? Uh, It's not necessarily blue skies and green lights. You know, in the West, we have so much in the way of physical provision that we sometimes mistake what looks like real spiritual victory and what might represent spiritual defeat. Uh, Paul was martyred for his faith. The Christians that heard this were persecuted for their faith. Christians today who are trusting God, who have the whole armor of God and are using it, they're being persecuted. They're being arrested. They're being imprisoned. Their properties are being seized. And many of them are being killed. So do you say, well, they lost the spiritual battle? 
And, and I would say, uh, by and large, not at all. What's the thing that really represents success on the earth in the arena of spiritual warfare? And this is what you'll see. It's simply that your faith remains intact to the end of your life. We were at a wedding yesterday, and uh, two people promise to love and be committed to each other until death parts them. So the success of a marriage, marriages go up and down. You know, better or worse experience in a moment. But success in some significant way is that the marriage endures to the point of death. Well, that's similar to our goal here. Success is that your faith endures to the end. It's that we die in the faith. 1 John 5, 4 says that everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. When you read the epistle to the Hebrews, the thing that comes up again and again is you want to persevere in the faith. Don't give up. Don't quit early. You and I can suffer lots of harm in this life. And God can allow that. That doesn't mean that you've suffered defeat spiritually. Spiritual victory is that your faith and mine remains intact until we see Jesus. He says also you've got a helmet of salvation. Um, for the, this, These are really nice. I don't think most of the Roman soldiers had anything that looked quite that nice. Uh, iron skull caps typically had some wool or some um, fabric inside of that and maybe a bronze cap on top of that. But you can imagine a sword blow against that, skims off, but if you didn't have that helmet on, man, you'd be toast, right? Paul says this, the helmet of salvation... And I just want to reiterate again, if you don't know absolutely that you're Christ, you don't have the helmet of salvation on. Um, One of the things that I was thankful God settled for me early was I knew I was saved and nobody could convince me otherwise. I have eternal life. God can't lie. It's eternal by nature. If I'm saved, I'm saved forever. If I'm not saved, I've never been saved. I know I have eternal life. I know I'm Christ. That'll take you a long way down the road. I know I belong to God. I know come hell or high water, whatever happens to me, when I die, I live with God forever. He's my Father. Christ is my Savior. If you don't get past this, if you don't know absolutely you're saved, you're always worrying in the background, am I a Christian or not? Am I saved or not? You're open to deception. You're open to a works version of salvation. I'll convince myself I'm saved by a legalistic form of obedience. And that won't give you any confidence either. You have to know that you're saved. That Jesus is who he said he is. That his death on the cross is adequate for my sin. And that I've apprehended that by faith. Simply said, yes, Lord, to that. My my head is then covered. My thoughts, my mind. I have a confidence no one else can give me. Nothing else can give me. I have the helmet the knowledge of salvation on. He says there too last, uh, this is the only thing that can be used offensively or defensively, the sword of the Spirit. And he says specifically, which is the Word of God. The spiritual sword of the Spirit, God's Word. Here, Paul makes clear, is meant to be spoken. Spoken. The term here for God's Word is rhema. It's not logos. It's not God's word like in John 1. It's rhema. It's uttered God's word. It's spoken God's word. And that in the temptations you and I face, Paul says the sword of the Spirit is God's word spoken. 
and, and go right back again to Jesus' temptation. To, to every temptation the enemy gives him, what does he do? He does the same thing every time. He speaks God's word. That's the defense. He doesn't do anything you and I can't. All he does is speaks God's word. That was the sword of the spirit. He showed us how to use it. Facing temptation, he spoke God's word. I was in uh, this week, I was entertaining some thoughts I shouldn't have been entertaining. And I was thinking, Lord, how do I get out of this? And, and a passage out of Psalm 19 came to mind. Uh, More desirable than gold, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. In keeping God's statutes, there's great reward. Well, that's what I needed. I told myself that verse. I was reciting that verse. And you know what? It freed me from the thought of the temptation. I thought, Lord, you can't lie. I know that the reward is great for refusing temptation. There's reward. God's word then uttered or spoken, reminding ourselves, speaking to someone else. That's the sword of the spirit. It's God's word. Guys, how can you use a sword you don't have? How many of us are vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy because we have no, no portion of God's word stored in our mind? Jesus didn't have the Torah in front of him when he quoted Deuteronomy in Matthew 4. But he had it here, and he had it here. He had God's word memorized. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If we don't know what God has said, guys, in this sense, significantly, if we don't know what God has said, we don't know what's true of us in Christ. And we don't have God's word to defend ourselves. Remember that faith is, faith is in God's word. It's not faith in faith. You know, lots of Christians talk about if you believe hard enough, you'll get this. It's like you've got to be kidding. We do not create reality. Faith for the Christian is always faith in God's word. It's in God and his word. It's not in what we decide to believe. Faith in God's word. You have to know God and you have to know his word to exercise the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You see that in Matthew 4. Chuck Swindoll said this too. I thought this was helpful. You know, we talk about reading our Bible, memorizing our Bible, meditating on the Bible a lot. Uh, you'll never have too much of it. Listen to what he says. The sword of the Spirit is not something we can pick up as novices and immediately wield like prose. Rather, it takes many years to grow in the Word of God. Sharpening our skills, enhancing our knowledge, applying it to our lives. Then, with God's Word in our heads, through memorization, in our hearts, through meditation, in our hands, through application, we have the power to effect change by speaking, sharing, and living out the Word. If you don't know God's Word, you don't have a sword. In fact, you don't have a shield either. You don't have a breastplate. You don't have truth. You don't have a helmet. And you have nothing on your feet. So you think about this. If we're not embracing Christ specifically, and then the truth of God's Word, you and I are defenseless against the enemy. Uh, Luther said his craft and power are great. On earth, there's no equal to the enemy you and I face. You cannot, you cannot succeed against the enemy without an absolutely informed faith in Christ Trusting in his word. He also says here, and I'm giving this really short shrift because there's just no time to pursue it. Praying at all times. On any one of these, we could have developed multiple teachings. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. He says, be alert, persevere. And he says, for all the saints. Paul says, you pray for me. 
And he's already prayed for them, right? Chapter 1 and 3, those great paradigms of a model for prayer in chapters 1 and 3. But he says, pray. We talk about praying. I, I hope we're praying. Prayer calendar. Are, are we praying for each other? We all need prayer. And when we pray, we're drawing near to God. He's informing us. He's drawing us near to Him spiritually. We want to pray God's Word to God, right? We know God will answer those prayers. You know, the best prayers are we take God's Word and we pray it back to Him, right? Those are the prayers God will answer. Pray God's Word back to Him. So we don't have time to develop that, but we want to be praying. And then we know this, and I hope this is the expectation. You know, one of the problems with living in the wealthy West is life can be pretty comfy. Have you ever said this to yourself? Lord, I want you to return after I get married. Or Lord, I want you to return after I get the new house, the new job, after I take that trip, after I do whatever. It's like, I'm looking forward to it. I've just got something else I'd rather attend to first. Well, that's probably the wrong attitude, right? The thought for us should be like the, the bride and the bridegroom yesterday at the wedding we were at. You know what? They don't care about anything else, right? Except getting hitched. We got married. We gained each other. And that's the attitude we're meant to bring to bear here. We want to see Christ. And this thing, Christ ruling over all, it's a given and it's coming. I've got a bunch of references there for you on your study sheet I'll let you look at. And sorry, I'm over time as I knew I would be. Um, Sorry, yeah, I always am, aren't I? Um, You've got some questions there at the end of your study sheet too. And I just encourage you to work down through there just as a little homework about where am I at? Where am I at in the ability to engage in spiritual warfare because I'm trusting Christ, because I know my Savior, and because I'm taking the truth of His Word in and I'm making it my own so that I'm ready for that. The world right now is still opposed to Christ. Uh, Christians and the church, we're trying to live this out, right? Christ overall, but He will return. He, he's made that promise very clear. He will return, and we want to be living life now with that mindset that, Lord, You rule over us now, and we prayerfully, expectantly await that day when we see Christ ruling over all things. Father, thanks so much that You have a purpose and a plan in all of life, that there's nothing going on that's accidental. Father, thanks that You've given us Yourself and You've given us truth by which we can not only wage... Uh, successful warfare but we can draw near to you we can love you and revel in the love that we have in you and in christ we can bless and serve each other and lord would you help us be people of your word people of faith people of prayer would you help us like that expectant bride or groom to be looking for and as your word says hastening the day in which christ is lord over all in his name amen